Hello and welcome to BGS English Revision Podcast. I'm Mr Forster and I'm here with Mr Yamanakis. And we're here to talk about Wind by Ted Hughes. So this is obviously for Literature Paper 1, your Poetry and Prose paper, and you'll have 45 minutes to write an essay from a choice of two questions, two different poems, so you'll always have a choice here, and the poem will always be printed in front of you, just as it is right now if you click on our handout from the link at the bottom of this podcast, and you can follow the key vocabulary and the essay structure that we're following along with a copy of the poem itself. Yeah, and the bullet points there will kind of prod you, a really good way of revising is re-annotating. I would always recommend that you may well have a poem that's full of annotations and that's great but that's your way of thinking your way through it so a good way of revising is to get yourself a blank copy of that poem like this handout like this handout and the bullet points there are designed to make you go back and look at things remind you of things ask questions of the poem which is the best way of engaging with it and if you're listening to this podcast whilst you're walking to school or on the bus to Feyland or stuck in traffic um, you can always go and download the handout later on and print it off or pop it on your OneNote as part of your revision so, what question are we doing today? Mr. So, we have the uh, trad IGCSE style question, which um, you as students will all become familiar with. Uh, and this time it is, how does Hughes vividly portray the power of nature in wind? So, I mean, so the first kind of comment on that is that Ted Hughes, um, as a poet, is actually quite easy to revise because lots of his poems are about the power of the nature or the awe-inspiring kind of... Um, nature of nature uh, and our, our relationship with the natural world um, nature for Ted Hughes is something terrifying or inspiring yeah, isn't it? Absolutely and, and whilst you're not expected to compare I think one of the things that's quite nice about studying a collection by a poet is yes absolutely the you know the, the power of nature the juxtaposition of human beings versus nature our relationship with nature whether it's threatening whether we're part of it all of those kinds of things come into the um, questions. So, as always, um, it's always a good thing to start about thinking at the beginning of your essay about your thesis, because at the top of the mark scheme, the top bands, the the words that always kind of come up is this idea of having this personal um, evaluative engagement with the text, this, this, that you've got an argument running through. You're not simply telling us things about wind, but you have a take, a slant on what you think the poem's doing. Absolutely. And that it is an exploration. It's you thinking out loud on paper. You don't necessarily have to have the answers, but you need to kind of raise the questions and engage with the language. Do you want to read the thesis that yes, you've written for? Yes, I this will. So um, here is the thesis statement for this question. Hughes' poem portrays the relentless violence of the natural world through powerful metaphorical language and personification. In this poem, the wind has the ability to alter landscapes and its brute forces juxtaposed with the fragility of human beings. It's also possible to read the text as an extended metaphor for a turbulent relationship, with the house and the later stanza symbolising the couple's inability to communicate. So what we've kind of set up here is the direction we're going to take in our paragraph. So we're going to be starting off by looking at the, the dense metaphors at the start of the poem to describe the wind, we'll then be looking at how humanity is depicted in, in comparison with nature, and then we'll be finishing by looking at actually, as Ms. Yamanaka set up in the thesis there, the idea of perhaps there being something, a metaphorical reading of the wind in the poem. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think the important thing is that unlike Thought Fox, which is absolutely definitely an extended metaphor about creativity, this one is a little bit more ambiguous. I I think it gives your um, analysis depth if you raise it as a question, because I think it's very much a possible reading, but you don't have to say that it absolutely is this. And you can use that tentative teasing language that seems to be. Suggests. It suggests there appears to be a reading of the poem which implies this. So let's start with our first um, our first section. 
So in the opening stanzas, Hughes establishes the landscapes in the morning after the storm has been raging. The use of metaphors and personification create a sense of chaos and alienation, so that a once familiar landscape is defamiliarised. What, what does that mean, Mr. It means that something that um, you would normally not even notice, um, you know, this landscape is obviously part of the poet's kind of daily life, but because of the impact of the storm, suddenly it looks strange and alien to him. So even though it's the landscape that he's, you know, he lives in, um, the impact of the storm means that he's detached from it in some way. And I think yeah. that explains some of the metaphorical language that's used. We see that in the first metaphor, don't we, the house that's been far out at sea all night this kind of metaphor of comparing the house to a, a lighthouse or a ship, mm. the vulnerability that, that's, that, that such a seascape would evoke. Um, what do you make of, of, of all of that? Well, I think, I, I think it kind of um, is echoed later in the metaphor of the tent as well. There's a sense that things that are immovable, you know, hills, fields, landscapes and things, houses, have somehow been kind of set loose by the storm. And, you know, he's using that kind of metaphor of them almost physically moving to show that sense, you know, when you come outside after a storm and, and the world looks like it's been transformed, not in a positive way. So it's that sense as though he's sort of lost his bearings almost. Mm. We see that in the verbs kind of running through, crashing, booming, stampeding, yeah. floundering, that juxtaposition between the kind of onomatopoeic verbs of the, describing the, the power of the wind um, and then the, 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 as if it's, I mean, stampeding is quite an interesting one. I think there's a sense of intent there, isn't it? It's as though the violence of nature is sort of deliberately directed at the landscape. Yeah, it makes me think beings. of that bit in, in The Lion King, like poor little <laughs> yeah. Simba. The, 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 the wind is this, is this powerful zoomorphic force, this herd of wild animals charging, charging through the landscape. And, and don't forget to kind of comment on the sounds as well, because, you know, Hughes creates this kind of um, amazing visual um, imagery, but also there's a sort of soundscape that goes with the, it. The too. oral landscape, yeah, the, the, the oral with an A, meaning to do with sounds. Um, the metaphors are quite interesting as well. Um, the, the, blade, the, the blade light that's wielded um, in the second quatrain here, the, the idea that actually um, there's, there's, a, there's a real violence to, to the weather, isn't there? Yes, and again, it's that sort of deliberate thing, isn't it, that um, it's as though the wind is, is attacking um, the landscape. Um, and I think the, um, the juxtaposition of luminous and black is interesting there as well, because colours are important in this poem too, aren't they, as, as daylight mm. breaks. The orange um, sky, the, the orange blade sky light, black and emerald. Yeah. And, and likewise, the, the simile describing kind of the wind, this personification of the wind as this the lens of a mad eye, this image of a, of a, of a, a, mad, a mad eye wielding a blade is a, a very unsettling image to describe yeah. the power and violence of the storm. Because it's a violence that isn't contained, a violence that Absolutely. challenges society, that challenges civilization. I think people struggle with that simile as well. I often find that in essays people don't know what to do with it. And I think it is that, there's that sort of almost sense of that it's involuntary, this mm. eye is sort of whirling around. But I think the fact that it is an eye as well, I mean, to me it does kind of suggest that sense of the storm as a kind of you know, malevolent force that's but kind of looking down, but a mad malevolent force, so it's out of control. There'd it doesn't no even purpose, really know what no it's doing. There'd be no purpose, no reason yes. to it. It'd be yeah. just a, this violent, eruptive force changing the landscape. Yeah. And I get, then just to finish kind of on, on this first section, looking at the, the, the metaphorical language, that going back to the tent, the idea the, the, the idea of the hills themselves, the hills, this image of geological time, stability, shaped by millions of years of... of, 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 of 
plate tectonics, and yet here they're transformed into a tent. And yes. if you've ever been in a tent in a storm, there's no less stable place to be. Absolutely, and it really emphasises that the, not the real fragility of the hills, because obviously they're not going to move, but, but Hughes is showing the power of the wind and he's imagining that the hills could just take off the same way that a flimsy tent might be taken away by a gust of powerful wind. Which is just more, says more about the speaker than it does about the hills, more about the sense of their own instability, a landscape that seems so fundamentally changed that it could blow away at any yeah. instant. And actually, you know, you might think it's hyperbolic, but any of you who have ever been outside in, in a Yorkshire, really, really powerful you know. storm, um, you know, they, they can flatten houses and do all sorts of things. So, um, so I think the, the, the obvious place in this essay to move from, because obviously it's always worth thinking about the shape of your argument, if we've looked at the power of the wind and this oral landscape that he evokes through all this, this imagery, the obvious place to then look at is the fragility of humans in, in opposition yeah. to this. And you've got a full stop there at the end of the second quatrain as well, which kind of adds to that um, sense of a shift now. Um, yeah, so we've got, in the, um, in the third stanza, the first person voice is revealed, and Hughes gives us the image of a lone man struggling against the elements. There is a shift now, so the landscape is viewed through the lens of a human perspective. Yeah, I mean, I know it, it is viewed through the lens of a human perspective the whole way through, but I think here um, that's foregrounded more specifically, isn't it? And we've got that temporal marker um, at noon at the beginning of that third stanza as well, so, you know, as we're moving through the poem, we're moving through the day also. Um, that verb scaled, I think, is definitely one that's worth um, looking at. Yeah, because the house is transformed into a mountain here. Yeah. So just as the mountains have been transformed into a tent, the, the house itself is now a mountain to be scaled, to be yeah. climbed. Um, everything is no longer what it is. Nothing's familiar. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, what he's doing is just a really mundane thing. I mean, this would have been in the days where most people had coal fires. All he's doing is going out of his front door and going around the corner to try and get coal from the coal house. But that, that now has been transformed into this sort of epic kind of mountain climbing journey because of because the, of the weather. Because, because of the, of the weather, landscape. yeah. Um, and we see that too in, in, in the depiction of the wind that dented the balls of my eyes. There's this kind of physicality to the imagery here. Um, uh, the brunt wind, brunt, such an interesting uh, adjective here. The yeah. idea that the, 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 the kind of the again onomatopoeically again the sense of solidity of forcefulness in those the harsh consonants yeah, there. The consonants in brunt and dented really gives you that sense. You can almost imagine the wind kind of. We've got these plosives, haven't we? Yeah. Like, but and the eye image there as well kind of echoes the mad eyeball earlier on doesn't it and I suppose that you know the eye, your eyes are the most sensitive part of yourself as well so that, and in the wind it does feel like you know it yeah. makes your eyes stream doesn't it it can yeah. feel you like you're, you're, feeling, your eyes. you're feeling the effects of the wind there I think it's also worth looking at the um, punctuation um, in that stanza as well you've got the dash at the end of the first line you've got the dash at the end of the third line um, uh, so that, that Stanza is a little bit more fragmented as he's kind of coming outside. And if you look at once I looked up, and then there's a dash. Mm. Um, so there's almost a kind of pause as he's looking up before the wind assails his eyeballs. Mm. The, the, the rhythms of the poem echoing the, the, that kind of staccato movement that you have through yeah. the wind, pushing your way against, against yeah. the and that and, and that's the thing, I think, when you talk about structure, to try and be as precise as possible, because sometimes with this poem people kind of go, oh, the enjambment reflects the movement of the wind. And it's not that that's not true, but it's more helpful when you can kind of pick particular moments mm. um, that you can refer to. Which I think leads us really to our kind of final point, which is the shift yeah. from the outside to inside the house. And this idea that we can, I think the crucial word here is, is can, read the poem actually as a metaphor um, for... A, the storms of a relationship that can shift the landscape 
uh, the emotional landscape, the domestic landscape of someone's yeah. life. Um, and even if you weren't going to do that, I, again, I think sometimes there's a danger, particularly when we've only got 45 minutes, that people kind of go chronologically and then run out of steam. And I think it's really important that you talk about those two final stanzas of the poem and, and where we are. Yeah, do you want to read the final um, topic sentence? Yeah, so in the final two stanzas of the poem, Hughes focuses on the interior of the beleaguered house and the couple within it. There's an ambiguity in their relationship. Are they merely sitting waiting for the storm to pass? Or is there a suggestion that the chaos of the storm is a metaphor for their troubled relationship. A once familiar landscape has become unrecognisable, both literally, as an earlier on, and perhaps now metaphorically, if we're talking about the relationship. Yeah. I mean, I think kind of there's a, a, that, that kind of simile that you've picked up on here that's one of my favourite in the whole poem, the mm-hmm. idea of, um, of the, the house rang like some fine green goblet in the note that any second would shatter it. This is an image of natural frequency, isn't it? The resonance frequency that if you sing just the right note, yeah. you can shatter glass, as, as we've probably all seen on YouTube. But it's an image of, of utter instability, isn't it? We've already seen the house as a ship out at sea. Now we're seeing the house as something even more fragile, as a goblet that could smash the And also the goblet is, is a thing that lives inside a house, doesn't it? So it's, it's a way of Hughes kind of taking us from outside to inside, that it's a man-made, fragile thing of beauty. Sound-wise, though, of course, as well, there is that, you know, the kind of endless, relentless sound of the wind. And crucially, but it is sound that would shatter a yeah. goblet. Uh, it, it, it lends the sounds of the poem suddenly this awful, terrifying power that the sounds can itself be damaging, can itself can smash this goblet at any minute. Um, yeah, and there's a, um, the shift from the outside world to inside the house happens after another caesura in the second line of the penultimate stanza, um, which I think is definitely worth um, looking at. Um, yeah, now deep in chairs on the third line, in front, in front of, of the great, great fire. fire. I think when you get a caesura like that, it's always worth thinking about, you know, why does he not, you know, he could have started that at the beginning of the next line, couldn't he? Um, but he doesn't. Um, so you get shatter it, and then next to it, you get now deep in chairs. So I think it links that image of, of um, something that's smashed, something that's broken, mm. to the two people sitting in their chairs. And it also it juxtaposes what should be an image of comfort. Yeah. Sitting in a deep chair by a fire is one that many of us harbour as like a, an idyllic Absolutely. image of and winter. And I think deep and great there as well kind of emphasise that, giving the suggestion of, yes, what it should be, that kind of cosy domesticity. Versus what it is, because we, yeah. we, we, we cannot entertain book, thought, or each other. That final kind of shift in that enjambment there is, is really telling, isn't it? This yeah. is suddenly a poem, it transforms the poem from simply being about the awful, terrifying power of the wind to being one about that's slightly different. The wind, that their response to the storm is not to cling together, is not to come together, is not to find um, solace in one another's relationship. It's instead to, to realise that actually they're not comfortable in the very yeah. house where they should be. It's like be. they're both suffering separately, aren't they, within this domestic space. And I think... Um, you know, again, I know you've only got 45 minutes, but finding some places where you can explore the connotations of particular images a little bit more is definitely worthwhile. And I think the fire's worth looking at. We go from great fire to blazing fire, and the connotations of fire are both, you know, contained, comforted domesticity, but also potential destruction, um, passion, yeah. another natural force as well. And if we see the house um, here, the roots of the house, it's a metaphor that's now comparing the house to a tree, and of course trees yeah. are uprooted by storms. And the idea of the roots of the house moving, the windows trembling, is an image of something that's supposed to be stable, supposed to be solid, and also something that historically 
represents our relationships, our house, our home, yeah. the place we live. Well, we talk it's... about our own roots, don't we? <coughs> Familial roots as well. So I think that's a, you know, another connotation of that metaphor. So there. if we see the house as representative of their relationship, it's shifting under the wind or seeming to shift. Mm. It could be read as a metaphor for the idea of the way in which the violence of... So sorry about that. That was the fire alarm. The so violence we... of the fire <laughs> the alarm. Violence of fire alarm. We had to go out and come back in. So we're just going to finish off now. Yeah, so um, we're yeah. just talking about how the violence of the storm could be read as a metaphor for the violence of a tumultuous relationship. The, the, and the way in which such um, anger within what should be a safe domestic space like a house could make it feel like the roots of the house have been shifted, that, you're, that the landscape has been reformed. Just yeah. like after a storm, everything has changed. So too, yeah. after an argument, everything has changed in, in, the, in, the, in the landscape of your own Absolutely. life. Absolutely. And, and then the house that should be the refuge from the storm isn't because the the storm is a metaphor for it's the relationship. Said it's a goblet, it's a ship, yeah. it's a, a place of vulnerability. Um, I also think, I don't know what you think um, about the final lines of the poem, which I think are, are, are really interesting, um, particularly that line of you know, hearing the stones cry out under the horizons, um, which always reminds me a little bit of Macbeth, and I don't know if that's a deliberate allusion to the bit where Macbeth talks about the stones crying out at the act that he's about to go and commit when he's about to murder Duncan. Yeah, and just like the idea that this safe domestic space is no longer mm. a safe space, it's a place... Yeah, it's also not the first time that Hughes ends poem with a horizon. It's almost as though he's sort of moving out more broadly into the world around and outside the storm. Um, so I think that's, that, that ending is, is a little bit ambiguous, a little bit unclear. Yeah. Um, so I think, we look so, at the conclusion? So yeah, yeah. really just to, um, to think that obviously it's nice to end an essay with a, a clear restating of what actually yeah. you think it's about. I mean, if you don't have time in the exam, don't worry too much about a conclusion. You have only got 45 minutes. And if you find yourself running out of time, I think the important thing, if you're not going to have a whole separate conclusion, is to just make sure that you have concluding lines so the examiner knows the essay is finished and they're not doing that thing about wondering whether there's another page. But in an ideal world, if you do have time... Um, it's nice to kind of wrap up your ideas and, and restate them. So do you want to read the conclusion? Yeah. Hughes's poem presents the wind as an ineluctable force that shapes the very landscape around it. Yves von Jambon, coupled with the temporal marks, allows him to express its power and the shift in the final quatrains ex- presents the extended metaphor of a troubled and turbulent relationship. The personification of the stones in the final line and the image of the horizon ends the poem on an ambiguous note.